Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the executive director of Coastal States Organization, and I'm the host for the Capitol Beach. I am very excited uh, about this podcast. I'm joined by um, a colleague and friend, uh, Nicole LaBeouf, the assistant administrator for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, uh, NOAA's National Ocean Service. Um, and we are going to be talking about a relatively recent announcement from NOAA about a relatively large amount of funding um, coming from both the bipartisan infrastructure law as well as the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Nicole had sort of talked about this a little bit last summer when the, the, the initial funding was announced, but now there's actually projects and, and actual funding to going to on the ground projects as opposed to just money from Congress. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So it uh, should be a good episode. Uh, you know, if, if you if you follow DC politics, you know, you got to follow the money and today's today's episode is all about following half a billion dollars of money. So, uh, but first we want to have a, a quick word from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Okay, uh, Nicole, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Uh, you have been a regular on ASPN podcast. I mentioned earlier that you were on a... Um, on a, on a podcast last August talking about the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So hopefully all our listeners know who you are. Uh, so rather than doing the full background, maybe you could uh, just give us one story or anecdote um, that you, that you still think about or, or something from your past that, you know, that, that informs what you do today, sort of a, a, a something that we can get to know you by without a full resume run through. Oh gosh. Well, um, hello, Derek. Uh, nice to speak with you again. So there are so many, experiences that I, I really tap into and call upon uh, to help me um, in my daily job and to guide how I approach situations. Um, I have learned, however, about myself to just say what comes to mind immediately um, is a way to trust my instincts and not to overthink uh, things and, and try and come up with the best example because there are just so many. Um, with that, I would say um, what I think about uh, frequently and that I think was formative for me was my involvement in the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. 
So many people have uh, a Deepwater Horizon story. Um, I'm really honored to be among those. Um, the hard part, of course, is distilling um, that experience into an anecdote. So I will, uh, I'll describe it this way. Um, I was plucked out of my day job uh, at the time, uh, a couple of weeks after the Deepwater Horizon uh, um, incident occurred, um, and definitely taken out of my comfort zone. Um, I had a, a reputation as a problem solver. Um, I was doing international treaty negotiations, uh, working at NOAA. Um, and I was kind of recruited um, and dropped into a legal and policy framework um, that I had never worked in before. It was highly complex interagency landscape. I was really an outsider when it came to oil spill response. I very quickly had to get my footing, figure out um, who I was relative to others, what the various roles were. And then I shaped my own position as NOAA's uh, first and, and maybe only um, oil spill finance lead. Um, basically, when agencies like NOAA respond to an oil spill, they do so under the direction of the U.S. Coast Guard, um, and they do their work out of hide uh, unless their activities are categorized as legitimate response costs. Um, in that case, they are reimbursed by the Oil Spill Liability Trust Fund. Speaking of following the money, right? Um, my job at NOAA, um, I was deputized to make sure that NOAA, as an agency that was front and center in the U.S. government's response to the Deepwater Horizon spill, was reimbursed for all of its activities or as much of its activities as possible. That may sound straightforward and there was a framework to do that in, but I can tell you it was challenging because of the size and the scope of the Deepwater Horizon event. Um, it was the first and to date only um, uh, spill of national significance as designated under the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. Anyway, I, I kind of had to, to, to jump in with both feet, um, find the courage to do that, learn as quickly as I could, um, and held the line wherever I had to to make sure that Noah's work was financially supported. Noah just couldn't lose um, you know, a lot of money in the process. Um, I had the I had the, the the chance to fly over the wellhead at the height of our controlled burns. Um, that was an awful experience that stuck with me. I got to see close up damage to the marsh, fish, birds, dolphins, and the people of uh, southern Louisiana. I flew back and forth to Louisiana for about a year and a half, working alongside other state and federal agencies and uh, BP uh, for uh, sometimes 10, 12, 16 hours a day. It was chaotic, it was fast paced, um, and every day had a steep learning curve. But I got to work with all of NOAA and really see NOAA shine um, in so many ways. It changed me for the good, I believe, um, and reminded me of how important our work is in um, making communities um, whole and making them more resilient to the next event, whether it be man-made or natural disasters. Um, it was really an honor to be a part of the uh, Deepwater Horizon spill response. Um, yeah, I think about it. I think about it a lot. Well, thank you for sharing, Nicola. I, I like, you're right. I think so many of us <laughs> who work in the coastal community had formative experiences with that. And yours just sounds absolutely incredible. And, um, you know, from, from, from trauma and traumatic experiences, there's a lot to be learned. And I think, you know, no one would ever wish those experiences to happen, but when we, when we respond to them well, I think we can really learn a lot. So I um, appreciate that, that input. And yes, your, your connection to the resource connection to people dealing with finance seems like it <laughs> set you up well for your current, your current role as assistant administrator at, at NOS dealing with people, resources, and, and money. Um, 
Speaking of resources and money, we are going to uh, talk about the recent announcement um, and hoping to, to get into a little bit of depth because I think one of the cool things about the announcement that came out from NOAA around the BIL um, and for our audience, I think we'll probably refer to the bipartisan infrastructure law or the uh, as the BIL um, and the Inflation Reduction Act as the IRA. Uh, apologies for the acronyms, but you know those of us in DC have to speak in acronyms. Um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, but before we get into sort of the, the some of the specific projects, which I'm looking forward to, can you give us sort of a high level uh, for those who may not have been following super closely? What what was in the bipartisan infrastructure law for NOAA, and what was in the IRA? Uh, for NOAA, and how do they sort of complement each other, or how do they how do they differ from 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 each other? Yeah, great question. So, um, in the BIL, there was approximately three billion dollars billion with a B uh, for NOAA. Uh, about half of that uh, is coming to NOS um, and NOS programs. Um, in the IRA, it's a little bit more. In both cases, is about three point three billion dollars for NOAA. And about 1.75 billion of that coming to NOS. Now, to give you some context for that, um, prior to BIL, um, again, that's an uptick of 1.5 billion. The NOS budget was just under a billion, so it's a very, very uh, large increase for us. They are historic investments, um, and they contribute to programs um, that are are you know well established. Um, but a lot of these funds are going to help uh, communities on the ground, help go out the door um, to vulnerable populations, helping uh, coastal communities prepare, uh, adapt, and build resilience to um, weather and climate events, particularly along the coast. I'm really pleased to say that both laws, in addition to the dollars themselves, but of course you can't you can't separate the dollars. Those laws highlight the importance of coastal restoration and resilience and improving our understanding of coastal and other climate impacts in ways that that no other laws have before. So I'm very glad that they came with money, of course, um, but in and of themselves, the language in the BIL and the IRA acknowledge this important issue in ways that we've we've not seen before. Yeah, excellent. And and talking about coastal restoration and coastal resilience as an infrastructure issue, I think is is in and of itself transformative. I mean, those we've exactly. been talking about that for a while, but to get that recognition from Congress and from the highest levels of the administration is excellent. So I sort of think about the bipartisan infrastructure law as passed by Congress as being a little bit more prescriptive. Congress sort of said, you know, Noah, here's all this money, but here's how you're going to divide it. Some's going to go to this program, some's going to go to that program, some's going to go to coastal zone management, some's going to go to NEARS, some's are going to go to marine debris, where the, the IRA was a bit more broad. Here's a chunk of money, do good resilience. Is that is that a fair way of, of thinking of the two bills in a sort of simplistic sense? Sure. At a high level, that, that really that really nails it. Um, uh, one is more prescriptive. Um, they're both talking about the same topic. Um, I'll tell you what we've been able to do um, because they are they are they lend themselves to complementarity um, because of the way they're written. Um, many NOAA programs, of course, as you noted in BIL, were called out um, to receive funds. Um, and um, for IRA, it's a bit it's a bit um, more generic. Um, but what we know is that many of our partners, the state, regional, tribal, local governments, universities, and others. Um, will be the recipients of these funds in either way. So what we've done in some cases, such with the restoration, uh, conservation, and marine debris projects that we 
recently announced in April, um, those were programs that were called out under the BIL. What we did at NOAA is we leveraged those call outs and um, those designations in BIL to use and apply IRA funds to enhance the number of projects that we could fund um, with the BIL dollars to have even more of an impact. So in some ways, the laws and the funds themselves complemented one, one another. And then what we were able to do at NOAA is to design our approaches to spending these funds so that they even more, so that complementarity was really uh, was was really called out. It was really important to recognize that Congress directed these funds to NOAA, not because we were you know new kids on the block when it comes to these issues, but because we're not. We have highly effective, decades old programs with experts and trusted teams around the country. So when we had an opportunity to use some of the IRA funds to augment those BIL called out programs, we jumped at the chance to do that. So I was going to bring this up a little bit later, but this this I think gets to the fact that there is so much need out there. And, and something that I've heard you talk about is the fact that with less money, it sort of it, it, it puts a damper on what that need is. And I think when we saw this level of funding, all of a sudden you had, you know, vast amount more applications for for the funding. So grants were, you know, where you might have seen, you know, 10 million in proposals, now you're seeing 100 million dollars in in proposals. And so the ability to as you said augment the BIL funding with IRA. Uh, could you maybe just talk a bit about sort of uh, what you see as as the need and going into this and then how how has that shifted or or how has that become more realized as you've as you've actually started to put some of this um, BIL and IRA money on the ground? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, I, we may never know going backwards what the project needs might have been five years ago, 10 years ago, had we had this level of funding like we do with BIL and IRA. But what we have learned already in year one of funding BIL projects and now moving into year two is that the needs um, and the challenges on the ground are being documented, coming in as far greater than the funding available, even at these levels. Um, uh, for our initial funding um, in year one of BIL, I can tell you we had meritorious project proposals, not bottom of the barrel, but good stuff, urgent stuff, uh, ready to go at two, three times and more of what those funding levels would be. I, I'm guessing that we have been not not purposefully, but inadvertently masking the true demand and and the desire of coastal communities um, because we've only had smaller amounts of funding available to date. So what we're doing now is working very hard to improve clarity and uh, transparency around uh, the sources of funding that we're providing and the needs that folks have on the ground so that um, we can make sure that everyone is aware uh, that these funds are available, knowing that they're likely going to fall short of the need of coastal communities so that they can still come in and apply so that we can help them navigate the grant writing process so that we can help them come in and, and get more articulate at asking for what they need. Because in that way, we can hopefully work with others like NGOs and the private sector to then say, look, the demand is really there. Is there more we can do together to fund these projects? And also to provide a signal back to Congress that, yeah, 
you were right. The funds, are, the, the needs are big and the funds need to remain big as well. Yeah, I, I had the opportunity to, to do a briefing with your counterparts over at Marine Fisheries. Um, so for, for folks who aren't in depth into the NOAA org chart, uh, there's the Ocean Service and then there's Marine Fisheries. So each each have um, separate uh, funding, both in, on appropriations basis and within um, these this these legislation. And, and I'm, I might not have these numbers exactly right, but uh, between the Office of Habitat Conservation and Fish Passage, which both came under marine fisheries, there was about uh, $900 million to be spent out over five years um, for, from BIL funding. And in the year one uh, request for, for funding opportunities, they received over $1.7 billion right. Um, right. in requests. So more more requests in year one than they have available for five years. That's right. So there, there's a huge, huge need out there. That's right. Well, let's let's sort of take that down a level and say, okay, so um, uh, you know, there were half a half a billion dollars announced um in funding uh last month. Uh, talk. Let, let's hear a little bit about what was what was in there. What were some of the things that were announced in the um in, in Noah's Noah's BIL announcement? Yeah, fantastic. So that's correct. Uh, we just recently announced a $562 million in investment across nearly 150 projects in 30 coastal states and territories. Um, these awards are specifically designed to help communities, including tribes, tribal governments, and tribal organizations build climate resilience, restore habitat, increase capacity in underserved communities to be at the table for these conversations and these activities, um, and also to prevent and remove um, marine debris um, through what we're calling our Climate Ready Coasts Initiative. This initiative includes uh, $477 million invested through a competitive process for high impact projects that create climate solutions by storing carbon, strengthening coastal communities' abilities to respond to high impact weather events, pollution and marine debris, restoring coastal habitats to help wildlife and humans, both um, and building the capacity, again, of underserved communities um, and supporting community-driven restoration um, and, and job creation. $46 million of this goes toward, or of the, of the overall initiative goes toward um, funding uh, administered by the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation's National Coastal, Coastal Resilience Fund, these will be competitively awarded projects to help communities prepare for increased coastal flooding and more intense storms, while also providing thousands of acres of restored coastal habitats. Um, and uh, there will be $39 million in non-competitive funding. Now, this is both BIL and IRA dollars to the 34 state coastal zone management programs and 30 national estuarine research reserves that work in partnership with NOAA under the Coastal Zone Management Act. Funding for these programs provides essential planning, policy development, implementation, research education, and collaborative engagement with communities to help protect coastal and estuarine ecosystems. Um, and again, these, these programs are uh, tested and tried and trusted, uh, and it's just been such a pleasure to be able to get um, both competitive and non-competitive uh, funds to them. Thanks. I really want to highlight that this much of this funding, particularly the BIL, in fact, probably all of it, I guess, is is going through pre-existing programs. This wasn't an idea of Noah's going to come up with some brand new idea for how to do restoration. There's, you know, there's a, a long fifty years of history with Noah and coastal states doing on the ground restoration, and this is 
you know, putting money to those programs, maybe geared in specific ways and, and tailored to address climate readiness and, and underserved communities, things that perhaps we weren't doing as much of, but should have been uh, 10 or 15 years ago, but it's still going through these existing programs. Um, and so hopefully through that can get on the ground and actually make a difference in communities quicker. Speaking of the, the community impact, um, I, I know there were, I think you said uh, 190 or 150 projects um, announced. Uh, while I'm sure they're all amazing, are there any any that you'd like to sort of call out or talk a little bit about to give sort of an example of, of what this actually means? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, of, of the 150, I'll, I'll just find a couple of examples. Um, because we're really looking where we can uh, to uh, select projects that will have uh, what some people call co-benefits, right? Um, projects, uh, restoration projects that have uh, multiple different uh, objectives, whether it's storing carbon, uh, uh, protective value for uh, communities against coastal hazards, um, building capacity of underserved communities, et cetera. So how many types of benefits can we stack up? Um, uh, one particular project I'll point to where a lot of these uh, objectives or co-benefits are coming together was um, funding that we recommended for the Coral Reef Foundations, Coral Reef Restoration restoration work in Florida, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, this project is designed to help protect uh, coastal communities from storms and rising seas by enhancing uh, coral habitats where fish and other wildlife uh, thrive, um, but also supporting recreation and tourism economic benefits for those locations. This particular project also seeks to help rebuild populations of five endangered species uh, listed corals um, and at multiple sites, including reefs where NOAA and our partners are already working hard to protect and restore those underwater ecosystems. So again, rebuilding endangered species and, and making the most out of investments that we already have on the ground. Um, this project's outreach and education activities will also bring co-benefits. We're going to engage uh, the Girl Scouts, student interns, and local communities um, and build upon established engagement programs um, to help those communities better understand and prepare for changing coastal conditions. We're also, um, for this project, looking to form new coalitions and partnerships uh, with a focus on equity and elevating vulnerable communities. So that's a good example, as you framed it, of using, using um, uh, existing programs and existing expertise and relationships um, but also sprinkling some new uh, framing in there um, and some new opportunities in there because of the historic level um, of, of these funds. Um, I'll, I'll mention one more um, that I'm really excited about uh, because it has to do with um, uh, getting um, funding to our coastal zone and management program, but also our reserves as a means to conserve land uh, through land acquisition. So acquiring land that is under threat of development, especially coastal land, can be expensive, uh, but it also offers an opportunity to enhance ecosystem resilience um, and can be scaled up um, it, with, with others that can come in and, and do some of the acquisition, or it can be used to help complete ongoing conservation or restoration of an area. Um, so we're funding a, a project called the Sand River Headwaters Acquisition Project uh, in Bayfield County, Wisconsin, uh, working with the Wisconsin Coastal Management Program. This project will allow Bayfield County 
to acquire over 2,000 acres of ecologically significant land vital to the health and functioning of Lake Superior's coastal resources. This land, again, to those co-benefits, provides a vital stopover habitat for migratory birds, spawning areas for Great Lakes fish, scenic views of Lake Superior. People like to go there and see that. Um, and so tourism and recreational opportunities as well. This acquisition also completes a broader agreement with the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa uh, and helps to center stewardship of this unique landscape with tribal partners. So, you know, land acquisition as a specific aspect of these funds and as an eligible expenditure of these funds can also have so many amazing co-benefits. So those are just a couple of examples. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah, I really, really appreciate both of those. I think, um, you know, coral has become sort of a, a, a landmark for natural infrastructure. You know, I think people do are really starting to understand that, you know, coral provides storm surge benefits, ecological benefits, and really does serve as infrastructure. Um, but I really like the idea that acquisition is eligible under infrastructure funding because, I mean, you listed out just a, a, a three or four different infrastructure benefits right. in an acquisition, right? It, it pr provides helps uh, clean the water uh, for the local area. It provides a buffer. Um, it's recreational. I mean, you know, <laughs> you can build a playground or you can preserve some land that has, you know, kayaking and fishing opportunities. And they're both, you know, they're both recreational infrastructure. So I'm really glad that that was both allowed and, and, and Noah um, took that to heart and, and invested in it. Okay, so we've we've had this big announcement. There's been processes. You know, we're we're a year and a half past when the bipartisan infrastructure law was actually signed by the president. Um, can you talk about some maybe some lessons learned um, in this first year and a half or year uh, from when the the bill was signed to getting money out the door and and sort of what that might indicate for uh, the next couple of years? Because both infrastructure bill and uh, the IRA are, are multi year funding. Uh, legislation. So talk a bit about what we've learned and how that might be applied to moving forward. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, in addition to what we've already talked about in terms of um, the uh, demand uh, signal and the demand for these projects outstripping um, even these dollar levels, um, which is one of our big, big learnings. Um, we've also learned um, that as much as we worked hard to do this to begin with, we absolutely need to um, be clearer about um, uh, application requirements, um, eligibility requirements, the transparency of the various funding sources. Um, there are so many opportunities for funding right now uh, across NOAA, and with more IRA funds to come, we absolutely want to do as good a job as we can at helping applicants navigate these opportunities. We're hoping to do that in, in even uh, new and uh, novel ways uh, um, under IRA. Um, and for now, our programs are working across NOAA to make sure that um, our, um, our web presence is up to date, that we're conducting webinars, that we're, we're connecting directly with partners to help prepare them uh, to be in the best possible position, uh, not only to understand their needs and articulate them, but to apply for the dollars um, to address their needs. And that includes working closely with tribal and native organizations, NGOs, and others uh, who uh, can uh, not only work with us, but work with one another uh, to uh, leverage their 
insights and their experiences at grant writing, which is super important, um, and help everybody kind of level up communities um, to get access to these funds. Uh, if they don't apply, we don't know they're out there. If they do apply but can't get all the way to the end to be funded, um, you know, that's that's information too. So we're really just trying to learn um, not only about what the project needs are, but what the on the ground capacity needs are so that communities uh, are actually um, able to uh, put their best put forward um, in these funding applications. Thanks, Nicole. And one thing I really wanted to commend Noah on um, in in some of this funding is is the commitment to uh, making sure that underserved communities had you know were going to be receiving some of these funds. That this wasn't just going to be going to sort of those you know big established communities that had you know paid grant writers. Uh, and that's that's a challenge, right? Because you know they've been <laughs> the fact that they have been underserved means they don't have the capacity to access some of the federal resources. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's been it's been great to see the support uh, directly. Um, some of the Habitat funding uh, went directly to underserved communities for capacity using partners, whether it's the state coastal zone management programs or, or you mentioned uh, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation's NCRF, who have access to sort of working with underserved communities to to apply for those grants. Um, sort of opening it up to, to respond to that, any, any thoughts about how how NOAA or, or even just community, coastal communities themselves can work to further help support support those communities, whether tribal or, or um, underserved in other ways that haven't always had that same access to federal funding? Well, I think um, making sure that they know uh, that we value uh, what they have to say and we value their needs and we know they're going to be different. Uh, you know, for a, a long time, I think we assume that if folks wanted to be in the conversation, and, and when I say we, I mean just the federal government, you know, if they want to be in the conversation, they'll come be in the conversation. Um, but, you know, I'm a I'm someone who gets paid to be in the conversation. Our staff get they get paid. That's part of their job. Uh, these communities, the folks there, they they have jobs. <laughs> um, and so what we're trying to do is be very um, intentional about building uh, and retaining local capacity uh, for communities to be a part of the conversation, to direct the conversation toward their own needs. And that includes directing funding toward that as part of the work. You know, we use the phrase shovel ready um, kind of loosely in the restoration world. And that means something, and that means something very important and positive. But you know, as you were noting, being underserved means that you don't have um, you don't have a shovel, <laughs> right? And so, how do we first get um, get communities, underserved communities, and others who have not had a seat at the table um, access to information, access to conversations, and make sure they understand that um, that they are key to decision making and really getting communities to help uh, be a part of. Uh, be a part of what their community is going to undergo, whether it's changes that in the coastal conditions or the restoration of places that are important to them. Uh, they absolutely have to be in that conversation. And I'm really hopeful that not just through BIL, but through our IRA dollars, um, we'll be able to make that, not just getting the shovel going, but getting the conversation going, um, making that core um, to how we how we spend these dollars. So you were talking about this, you know, how this funding can't be a once in a generation 
opportunity. And I think that's absolutely right. You know, when you look at the crises facing our coast and the amount of people that are living in our coastal areas, you know, this this level of funding actually reflects the need and not just the one-time need, but the ongoing need to address things like sea level rise, storm surge, coastal storm intensity, loss of biodiversity, you know, in, in some of the most populated areas of the world. Um, and so how do coastal communities, how do, how do those of us who, you know, represent and work with on the ground coastal communities, what can we do to help ensure that this is not a once in a generation opportunity, but a, a new paradigm, the new, demonstrate that this is the new real need for coastal communities? Well, that's a great question. And there's probably uh, many different ways that we can all contribute to demonstrating um, that these dollars uh, were needed, are needed, and will continue to be needed. Of course, the budget process is very complicated, and there are a lot of challenges facing our nation, not just coastal change. Um, and, but and and so there will be budget trade-offs, uh, just like in any in any fiscal year, um, as these dollars begin to sunset. But even before they begin to do that, um, uh, it is really, I believe, incumbent upon all of us to make sure that we are communicating uh, the impact of these projects on the ground, whether that be associated with um, restoration or bringing a community to the table. Uh, we really have to shout from the rooftop um, how important these dollars are as soon as they begin to land um, so that in tangible ways, um, so that we can make sure that others understand this and, and see the near term and hopefully the long term impacts of this work. You know, when we announced um, the $562 million, um, you know, just a few weeks ago, uh, we got very high level attention on that. The vice president, um, even the president in some ways, um, uh, amplified that messaging. We made uh, so many regional calls, media calls, congressional calls to make sure that all around the coasts, um, uh, important uh, actors and players and advocates for for these dollars were aware that they the awards were being made, um, and I mean I think we made like thirty different state level press calls. That's just for for state and regional uh, press to ask questions and that kind of thing. So you know that's just to kick things off. But as the conversations really begin and communities start to dig in and make use of the dollars, um, as as they start seeing the impacts on the ground. We're going to need everyone to help celebrate the projects, to help describe them and help get buy-in um, for the specific impacts of projects that, you know, Congress has put their faith in us generally to undertake. And it's not just for us. We can't just announce a project and leave. Um, we, we will be there. NOAA will be there to provide technical assistance along the way for all of those projects to ensure that they will succeed um, and we will be meeting with the communities and the partners, um, but we can't be the only one that's getting the word out and amplifying that message. So, you know, as, as just an example, um, we've developed or as a way to get the word out that others can help us with. We've developed an interactive map of uh, NOAA's BIL investments. It's online. Um, you can learn about projects taking place in your state uh, at uh, www noaagovernor slash infrastructure dash law. Um, I'm sure you could also just use a search engine um, to look for NOAA's uh, BIL or infrastructure uh, investments. 
Um, but these examples um, are going to begin to tell stories um, and, and tell stories, hopefully, of positive impact and engagement, um, even in the face of so much change along our coast. So we need to get the word out. Um, we need to um, uh, better understand uh, all along how the projects are working uh, so that each year when the funding opportunities come back around, we put them on the street. We are using the lessons from last year to improve our process, to improve our insights, and to award the most uh, meritorious and impactful projects. Thanks. Yeah. And I'll, I'll include that link in the show notes um, so you can directly link to that. And yeah, I agree. I mean, I think folks on the ground, we just need to we just need to tell our stories and we need to do a better job of telling our stories. And we need to tell our stories broadly and through social media and directly. Right. We need to be inviting members of Congress out to the project sites and being saying, hey, this is this is what's being funded. Because I feel like so much of the work that we do and what NOAA funds, it's just a bit harder to describe, right? You build a bridge and you can see the bridge. You know, you restore a wetland and it looks like what a wetland should look like. It, lo- it looks like you haven't done anything because that's what people envision that wetland looking like. So it's just, it's harder to tell those stories, but we need to do it. We need to get the members of Congress out there. We need to be, you know, talking about this funding being transformational and, and restoring and restoring our coast and creating resilience. I'd love to see members of Congress and governors and other people um, that can be our advocates. I'd like to see them in boots and waders. You know, I'd like to see them out there really understanding, you know, it's not a bridge, like you said. It is this other thing that is so much, depending on the use, you know, potentially so much more powerful. Yeah. Let's get let's get some members of Congress uh, in some scuba gear seeing the coral reef projects in the Virgin Islands. Absolutely. Well, speaking of scuba gear, I think my final question, usually I ask what's your favorite coastal location, but I'm, I'm switching it up for you. I, I'm interested to hear what what's your favorite coastal activity? And I know that's a tough one because we all love to do so much stuff on the coast, but do you have a favorite, a favorite sort of thing to do when you when you get some free time and you're not out, you know, talking about financing, what do you like to do on the coast? Well, first of all, thank you for not putting me on the spot about my favorite National Marine Sanctuary, my favorite National Estuarine Research Reserve, because I can definitely get into trouble there. Uh, but I grew up along the coast and I like to do a, a lot of things. You know, kayaking is one of the most, uh, one of my most frequent activities. Um, but what I, but I, what I will say is really the most restorative to me, since we're talking about restoration, is listening, being in the marsh and just being still um, brings out some of the most powerful uh, combination of sounds, right? For me, it's the, it's the call of red-winged blackbirds. Um, it's um, that sound of that calm, steady breeze across the Spartina. You know, it sounds like it's one sound, but it's not. It's infinitely complex as the sound comes through all the different blades of grass. Um, and so when I when I realize that and I'm reminded of that, it's it's the contrast of this of this sound that seems on the surface really soft and, and gentle, but is um, representing something that is much more powerful. It is absorptive, it is attenuating, it's filtering, it's protecting, it's sheltering, it's feeding. Um, and the marsh is just so incredibly influential, uh, both uh, for the well-being of animals and humans alike, um, that I just love uh, how hard it works um, and how subtle it can seem. So it makes you really makes you really sit still and listen. I love that. Thank you so much, Nicole. Really appreciate you joining us today 
telling us a lot about the, the funding opportunity and then inspiring us with some calming meditative thoughts at the end. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. I'll meet you in the marsh. Yeah. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks, everyone.